0: We are saying uh, every week that perhaps the answer to your confusion or your doubts or maybe even your boredom with Christianity will be found if you go back to the beginning. Because in the same way if you ever start a book or you start a movie in the middle, you're going to be confused about things. And here, I think we, we find a, uh, a fascinating explanation for something. Because many times it's not till college. That you really encounter some wreckage. That many times in college, you experience real pain, whether it's through um, divorce or something that's been done to you. Many times, uh, you feel the real pain of of like our own sin that you begin to discover. And what probably is unique to the United States Christianity is that what we do with that is we are surprised. We're surprised that they're suffering. And we're surprised that we're sinners. And what about if that's because we forgot the beginning? That Genesis 3 actually tells us this world that we live in, right now, what it looks like and what it's going to feel like. There's going to be pain, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be shame. And it says we should actually expect it and not be surprised by it. Let me uh, let me pray for us. Father, even those words, uh, pain and shame and sin, uh, can be really hard to hear. Um, because for some of us, it reminds us of things uh, that feel way too close to home. Things that maybe uh, we experience today. And Lord, there's probably some that are nervous tonight because they are coming and convinced that they are going to be beat up. Uh, that more shame is going to be heaped on Lord, I pray that you would be the God that you say that you are and be a God who removes shame and brings rest and brings healing. But would you do it as we get an honest look at our hearts within an honest look at a sweet Savior? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's Genesis 3, starting in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. He's talking about Adam and his wife. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I'll surely multiply your pain and childbearing, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the chair of him. And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The psalmist says that God's word is sweeter than honeycomb. Maybe we discover that even in a, in a really hard passage tonight. Alright, let's look at two things. One, the wreckage of sin. And then two, the God who enters the wreckage. First, the wreckage of sin, verse 7 through 19. Last week, if you are with us, we saw how Adam and his wife, they fell for the deception, the craftiness of Satan... They distorted God. They thought that God wasn't good. They thought that God was withholding God. And so they decided to, to be their own king, to, to call the shots for themselves. And they rebelled against the God who made them in His image. They, may, they rebelled against the God who loves them and cares for them. And now we get an up-close look at what the effects of that rebellion look like and feel like. And you're going to see three things. that we, Life is now characterized as a wrecked relationship with God a relationship with each other and a wrecked relationship with creation. First, a wrecked relationship with God. You've got to take in how devastating these verses really are. It was just a chapter ago where Adam and Eve were, were in a perfect relationship with God, enjoying His love, giving back uh, the delight and love to God. There's this spiral of love and delight as life is how it's supposed to be. They knew where they stood with God. They knew God loved them. And they loved God back. But now it's devastating. Because instead of this beautiful relationship where everything is right, sin has entered the world. And sin always separates. And now they're separated from God. Now there's guilt and shame. Sin always brings guilt and shame. And you can see it here. Guilt is the knowledge that I have done something wrong. And therefore, guilt is the reality that we live in. And so when God shows up in verse 8, what do they do? They hide. It's why criminals hide from the police. Guilt makes you hide. But then what else happens? There's shame. And shame is, is that reality that comes when you... When you sense, it's not just that I've done bad things. It's that I am bad. And therefore, if somebody sees me for who I am, I will be rejected. I won't be accepted. That's shame. That's why from now on, nakedness will always be a symbol of shame. That if if God sees me and you see me for who I am, there will be rejection and shame. And so in verse 7, when God shows up, They try to cover themselves with fig leaves. They try to make themselves presentable to God. And I want you to feel this. What the Bible says characterizes all of humanity now. From the moment you enter this world, it's guilt and shame. That we all are overcome with guilt and shame. Deep down, we know that on our own terms, we are not right with God that God has every right to be angry with us and to judge us because we've rebelled against Him. And the reason I know this is true of you and me is yes, the Bible says it, but also because we just hide and we cover. That's what we do. Like if you connected the dots that, that the root of so much of what you do and how you think is simply a manifestation of efforts to try to hide from God, and To try to cover your shame, because there's guilt and shame, <clears throat> and it and it might not look as ridiculous as fig leaves, right? This is—if you've ever seen a picture of Adam and Eve that somebody tried to you know draw of them in fig leaves, it's it does injustice, right? In some ways, they're like dress that like Eve sewed out of fig leaves. You're like, that actually looks pretty nice. I might wear that, you know? <laughs> that misses the point. It it's supposed to look silly. Because it is. What they're trying to do to cover their shame looks silly before God. And what you and I do, it might not seem as silly, and it might not seem at its root that it has to do with God, but just ask yourself, how much of your actions and speech is really just a big PR campaign that you're running trying to spend what people think of you? And at the heart of that, I'm telling you, you're trying to spend what God thinks of you. That that cool, unaffected by anything and everything facade that you bring every day, it's a cover of shame. You're trying to not let people see who you really are. And it's the only way that you know how to feel okay. How much of your busyness, of your involvement, of of your involvement with everything so that you have no time to stop and reflect? How much of that is actually a form of hiding? that you don't have to reflect on guilt and you don't have to think about your standing before God. Have you ever considered that your inability to say no to people, you're always having to be on, is simply a cover? And if you start thinking in those terms, you're realizing the depths of our guilt and shame. When you start realizing perfectionism and work and makeup, all those things, they just function as fig leaves. Trying to put up a representation to God and to other people to cover our guilt and shame. And tonight, if you—if this just sounds silly to you, I'm so, I'm so glad you're here. This, we want you here if you're investigating this. But if you're saying, this is ridiculous, I don't feel cut off from God. If there is a God, there's no way He's angry with me. I say this tenderly with care. But could that thought... Be the very thing that's the proof you're hiding from reality. Because reality is too hard to bear. So you don't want to acknowledge that. And so sin, first of all, what it does is it severs our relationship with God. And so we respond by hiding and covering. But second of all, it wrecks our relationship with other people, right? Verse 11 through 13. Because relationship with God is central. When that breaks, everything else breaks. And so the consequence is that, is that we don't get along like we're supposed to. Did you notice the interaction of Adam and his wife? If it wasn't so sad, it would actually be funny. When the Lord questions Adam, have you eaten of the fruit of the tree that I command you not to? He says, it's not my fault. It's the woman's fault. that you get. He actually blames God. He says, you gave her to me? And then he, the Lord looks at, at uh, the woman and says, what have you done? And she says, it's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault. And remember, feel the devastation. It was just one chapter back that when Adam saw his wife for the first time, he explodes in joy and says, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And you get this beautiful picture of loving and nurturing and caring for each other. But now, sin and shame means that Adam only cares about himself. So he'll throw his wife under the bus if that's what it means to survive. And now our relationships, all of them, are characterized by blame-shifting, by using each other, by trying to control each other instead of loving each other and serving each other. That's the reality of the world that we live in. This is why relationships are so dysfunctional. Because of sin. You know, it it was amazing. My youngest uh, is Clark, uh, who is now two and a half. And it was amazing. So he he has two older sisters. It was amazing how many things were his fault until he was able to communicate. Like he would end up crying on the floor and I'd walk in there and what happened? And Shelby, and anyway, he just, he just fell. You know, all, it, until finally he was able to verbalize and I walked in there and he was able to say, Annie, hit me. And it was amazing. No longer was the blame shifting working. And you start realizing this develops at an early age. We just naturally blame shift. Because it's one more way of hiding. And have you felt the wreckage of it yet? Like if you felt the wreckage communally from blame shifting, think of the present racism that is just wrecking us. How often is the first reaction to point the finger across the aisle and say, well, it's their fault? And as long as white people are saying it is their fault, there will be no healing. The first reaction is to say, I think it's our fault. Right? Or it can happen on an individual level. Right? If you felt the wreckage of a dating relationship when, when instead of loving the person, you've started using the person and controlling the person. And that can go from making out to everything in between to actually, actually having sex. What you end up doing is you sacrifice the other person for a good feeling. And so you're throwing the person under the bus so that you can feel good about yourself. And you say it isn't wreckage. I'm not saying it's not fun. But I bet the jealousy you feel towards the person you date. And the quick anger that you have towards that person. I bet it tells otherwise. But there's wreckage that's happening. As instead of loving and serving each other, you've begun to use each other. And so the irony of it all is we are, in a, we are in a load of wreckage. And the irony is the only way out is to finally start admitting it. But as long as we blame the circumstances around us, as long as we blame our parents, as long as we blame our friends, as long as we blame the hard day I was having, it's just going to be another form of hiding. And we stay in the darkness. If nothing is ever your fault... That is when you should most be pitied. That's when there's no hope. And lastly, there's a wrecked relationship with creation, right? Verse 18 and 19. Did you catch this? Because our relationship with God has been wrecked, and then we we have a relationship with each other that's been wrecked, God says that now thorns and thistles will come forth from creation rather than fruit. There'll be toil. There'll be suffering. There'll be death. Nature Nature itself breaks. Instead of nature being a place of peace and life and stability and safety, nature is now going to be characterized by decay, by danger, by suffering, by instability. And I know this is is probably elementary, but I'm going to say it. That means poverty and cancer and homelessness and death and disease. They are signs that things are not the way they're supposed to be. That sin has really entered this world. Creation itself is wrecked. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's still beautiful in many ways. It's still good in many ways. But it's not the way it's supposed to be. All that to say sin has broken everything. First and foremost with God. But as a consequence with everything else. And there is a truckload of wreckage around us. We hurt each other. We hurt this world. And it hurts us. And so life is now characterized by sorrow and pain and sadness and death. And I'm just going to bet some of you need to hear this. Because if Genesis 3 is a picture of the world that we live in, of reality itself, then that means mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, sadness and grief. That's what it looks like to live in line with the realities of this world. Jesus really does say, blessed are those who mourn. Look, if you, if you have not seen the movie Inside Out by Disney, you've just missed it. Like, this is what Disney is trying to get across. It's this beautiful display that there's this girl who's moved in a very difficult, you know, she's a teenager, all these hormones going on and, and a lot of hardship in her life and the whole time, Joy, the character Joy, is trying to keep her from being sad. Trying to keep her from experiencing grief. And in the end, they realize it's just dehumanizing her. Because it's out of line with the reality of this world. If your goal in life is to avoid suffering, to avoid ever experiencing sadness and never mourn, I'm telling you, you're living outside of reality. And it's dehumanizing you. And some of you need to really think about that. Because we make so many efforts to try to make everything clean and okay and explainable. So many dumb things are said at funerals because we just don't want to be sad. That we make up other stuff that's just not true. And so many of our addictions, like to work or sex or alcohol or approval, it's just ways to avoid pain and sadness. Because we don't know what to do with it. What Genesis 3 is saying, if this is the world as it is, sadness is actually living in line with reality. If we are full of guilt and shame, if the world is messed up, then listen to me the danger is not that you and I are sinners, the danger is that we never recognize it and never mourn over our sin. That's the danger. The danger is if you act like this world as it is, is what you were made for. Because it's not. And so we've seen how the sin of Adam has wrecked everything and we've continued the wreckage and we bring our guilt and shame to the table and we hide and we cover and we blame shift. So what's the hope? And I suggest you're, you're actually in the right place if you're beginning to feel that, man, like things are so bad here. And so bad within me. That our only hope is if God does something. Yes. Like you're in a really good place. If that's your only hope. Because this is the God who enters the wreckage. Right? God graciously comes after Adam and his wife. And he brings them out of hiding. And he brings them into a conversation. After all the hiding. After all the blame shifting. And he says he's going to do two things. In response he says he's going to bring pain. I don't know that, how that hits you, but that's what he says. In response to all the rebellion, all the wreckage, God says he's going to bring discipline. And He's going to bring pain into this world. That that discipline is going to manifest itself in this world and in people's lives as suffering and hardship and pain. Right? He looks at the woman and he says, I'm going to sharpen your pain in childbearing. God says that. And of course, that means the pain of labor itself, which, thank goodness, I will never experience. But it also means the like emotional and psychological pain of child rearing, of bringing up a child whose nature is rebellious and sinful. And then he promises that marriage will be hard. Sorry, Lauren Wilson, it'll be hard. <laughs> that that we will want to we will want to dominate your your spouse will hurt you. I promise. And then to Adam, he curses the ground and he says, In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, and by the sweat of your face you you shall eat bread until you finally die. You get this picture in this that God is going to make sure that there is weariness and pain and suffering, and it will eventually end in death. And so in response to Adam and Eve's sin, God says this life is going to be painful. It's going to be wearisome. It's going to have suffering. And this is where you got to stop and ask the question, like, why would God do that? Why would God, who is love, and who loves Adam and his wife, why would he say for all the rest of humanity, there's going to be pain, suffering, sorrow, toil, and eventually death? Well, think about this. We, we know this, right? We know that pain, though something you don't want, can actually be a good thing. Right? Pain is a good thing if there's something wrong with you. Right? If your hand goes onto a stove that's burning and you don't feel pain, that's actually bad. Things are going to get worse. Pain lets you know that there's something wrong. And so you remove your hand. And see, God loves Adam and his wife and you and this world so much that he will not let you live in this broken and messed up world without pain. That would be the worst thing that he could do. The worst thing would be for him to allow us to live apart from him and experience no pain and sorrow. Because we would be disillusioned on our way to death. And so from this point on and at every point in their life, think about this, this is Adam and Eve who experienced the Garden of Eden. Now when they had children, now when they raised children, now when they work in the field, now when they watch their children die, every time it's a reminder that things aren't right. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And they get this repeated reminder that rebellion against God, who is life, who is satisfaction, always ends in destruction. And so the worst thing God could do would be to let them and us live in the false reality that hiding and covering fixes things. Because it doesn't. And so he brings pain and suffering. C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in pain. And this is what Lewis is talking about. Yes, God gives plenty of enjoyment in this life, comforts and joys, I don't know about you, but rarely do the joys of life drive me to repentance. Rarely do those things make me long for Jesus. But there's something about pain. There's something about suffering that makes us realize this world isn't right. Relationships aren't supposed to be this way. My heart isn't right. And it drives us back to God. And you know this is true. Most of your stories when I sat down and talked with you about... About how Jesus found you and how you cried, up to him, cried out to him. Rarely did they go like this. Well, it was like the greatest day of my life. And I finally like achieved everything I wanted to achieve. And, and I was very comfortable. And it was right there that I realized, man, I'm really sinful and I need Jesus. I wish that was true. That's just never our, our testimony. Most of the time, it's the pain of Emptiness. And those mornings when you wake up and you think, like, what have I done? That you finally cry out to God. Or it's when you felt the pain of loneliness and you realize, like, this is not the way things are supposed to be and you cry out. Or when you stare death in in the face and that pain jolts you to reality and you consider, like, is there more to this life? It's that kind of pain that drives you back to reality. And God promises pain so that we will know things that aren't the way they're supposed to be. And so pain and suffering are coming. The question is, what will you do with that? You will either harden your heart or it will soften you, depending on where you go with it. You know, there's this series of books, this little-known series of books um, called Harry Potter, um, where, I'm going I'm to run that joke into the ground, you're going to realize, but in this semester. And... It really is this great line where where Harry, this is in uh, Goblet of Fire, he comes out of this place of tremendous suffering, of where he's seen death, of where he's experienced pain. And he's sitting with Dumbledore. And Dumbledore says, look, I know you want to postpone thinking about what happened tonight. And I could put you into an enchanted sleep, and we could numb the pain. He says, that would actually be the worst thing for you. He said, what you need to do right now is you need to tell me what happened and endure the pain. And as Harry begins to to tell it, it says it felt like poison was being extracted from him. And that's it. Pain and suffering are coming. Wreckage is coming. Where will you go with it? If you hide, if you numb it, it will harden you. If you run to Jesus with it, there's actually hope. And that brings us to the last thing. God actually makes a promise in verse 15. God curses Satan, the serpent. He promises that Satan will be humiliated. He says there's going to be enmity. He says, Satan, you might think think that you have won. I'm telling you, the war has begun. There's always going to be conflict between you and my people. Between you and the woman. And then God makes this promise in verse 15. He says, the woman's offspring... There's going to be someone that's going to come from the woman that will crush the serpent's head. Did you see that? God says, Satan, someone's coming. He's going to be born of the woman. He's going to finish you off and do away with you forever. And when you're finished forever, so will all pain be gone. So will all suffering be gone. So will all sin be gone. God promises to send a hero, a champion born of a woman. And did you catch this? What's going to happen to the champion? How is this hero going to destroy Satan and eventually heal the world of all pain, suffering, and evil? It says his heel will be crushed. The way this hero is going to destroy everything is he himself is actually going to experience suffering. He himself is actually going to experience pain and sorrow. The hero is going to defeat sin... And defeat Satan and do away with all that. Not by avoiding pain and suffering. But by going through it. Not by avoiding the wreckage, but by enduring it. And sure enough, 2,000 years ago, there's a virgin woman who is hiding in shame. And gives birth in isolation. In a place of hardship. In a stable. And brings forth a seed, a champion named Jesus And this Jesus is the very one who makes this promise. This Jesus is God himself in human flesh. And his whole life is marked by pain and suffering. From birth until death, it is pain and sorrow and rejection. Until it culminates in the night before he is arrested, where he is, interesting enough, back in a garden. And God has promised, right, through pain and through sweat, man will bring forth fruit And Jesus is in a garden and he starts sweating drops of blood. As he starts realizing what it's going to cost him to bring forth the fruit of what he wants. Which is you, his people. And then he's arrested. And he's put on a cross and his pain is multiplied. Multiplied. Why? Because Jesus told the woman. I mean, because God told the woman, your pain will be multiplied in childbearing. And Jesus on the cross his pain is multiplied infinitely as he's bringing in sons of God, children of God, as he bears the wrath for our guilt, and as he is uncovered naked, bearing our shame so that we can be covered. This is who God is. This is what God promised Adam and his wife. The rest of the Bible is telling this story that God will not break His promise. He won't break it. The God who shouts to us in our pain says, I will go with you in your pain, I will stand with you in your pain, and I will heal your pain one day by bearing your sin and suffering. And Adam gets it. Adam gets it. This is beautiful. After hearing God's promise that He will not leave them, that He will bring pain, but that He's going to bring a champion through the seat of the woman. Did you see this? He names his wife Eve, which means life giver. Adam believes the promise. He says, okay. And it's all the wreckage, all the damage, all the ruin. God makes this promise and I guess I'll believe it. Eve, you must be a life giver. There must be a hero coming. And that's how I'll end tonight. Like, look at Adam in Genesis 3. He has nothing to offer God. He's ruined everything. has nothing on his resume that he can say here this is why you should like me God all he has on his resume is disappointment failure and sin and I don't know what's going on in your life but you have not caused more wreckage than Adam you just haven't there's probably a train wreck of disappointment of shame of maybe even things done to you that, that you feel ashamed about and it wasn't your fault and I'm sorry but maybe you're standing here tonight, Ralph, and you have no resume to offer God. And what if that's finally seeing reality? And what if that point, your only hope is that there's a God who will stand in your wreckage? And what if that, that God is Jesus? And He will not shame you, but He'll love you. He will not blame you. He'll actually... He does the exact opposite of that. He looks at God and says... Don't blame them. Blame me for their sin. And Jesus will cover your shame. And then he'll begin to make you like himself through pain and suffering. He is a God of grace. Will you trust his promise? Will you believe it? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for well, the dark, this very dark chapter. Uh, probably the second darkest chapter in the Bible. Lord, there's an even darker chapter, and it's when the righteous one, the perfect one, Jesus, went to a cross. And the greatest evil the world has ever seen, the God-man dies, man, so that we can have hope, so that we can have life, so that we can be covered. Lord, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time, may we experience the joy Of the good news of the gospel tonight. And bring us out of our wreckage. And believe that you stand with us in it. In Jesus name. Amen.